Hi, welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast. I'm your host, Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Alicia Abbott. She is the author of Fairyland, which is just out from W.W. Norton, and I'm delighted to have you here today, Alicia. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Thanks. So, Fairyland is the story of you and your father growing up in San Francisco, and one of the things that struck me about this, and we'll get into the whole arc of, of the life story over the course of the conversation, but in the making of Fairyland, one of the things that struck me was the access that you had to your father's writings in constructing the story. So this is as much his story as it is your story in a way that would otherwise not be possible. Yes, that's true. And I think I was very excited that I could be able to bring in his voice into this story because I think to convey a person in writing is so difficult, almost impossible, and that I had access to his own voice, both as a public persona writing his poetry, but also his private diaries and his letters to me. I felt readers would really be able to get his ideas and his humor in a way that would have been hard for me to do. Because, you know, the ability to understand as a teenager and as a pre-teenager, you know, what was going on in your father's life you actually do sort of like present that dual perspective pretty effectively in terms of like, well, this is how I experienced what was going on. And here's all this stuff that I had no idea about at the time. Yes, absolutely. It was, it was really interesting because I think I, I came away from the experience with a lot more sympathy and respect for what he was trying to accomplish. Because when you're a young person and a teenager, I think it's really hard. To, you're still trying to get to see your parents sort of apart from you and you can't really see them as individuals with their own trials and their own disappointments and concerns and I wasn't open to even hearing those so much as a teenager because I was going through and thought my own concerns were more important and now with the 20-year vantage point I feel like I could really see what was motivating him in different situations and I felt it would make it a much more interesting story to have both of our perspectives in, in some of our conflicts. For example, your youthful narrative of your family history was that, you know, your parents had been married, your mom died in an accident, a car crash when you were two, and that your, your father's grief was so powerful, basically he could never love another woman after that and became gay. And it turns out, of course, that the truth is much more complicated than that. Right. I mean, when I was very little... I think into young girlhood, I, I did really believe that the only reason he couldn't be with women was because he loved my mother so much. And that was a comforting story for me because it still retained this idea that they had a, a real romance that was so powerful that that would explain why I couldn't have a mother again was because it was so powerful that no mother could, no other woman could take my mother's place. I knew as I was a teenager that he was definitely gay and had boyfriends, but I really didn't even know the extent to which when he was with my mother, they had an open relationship and that he was actually very deeply in love with another man and at times you know, didn't treat her very well or didn't treat her in a way that, that corresponded with my fantasy about their relationship. And so when I initially discovered those journals shortly after his death and I learned those more intimate details of their time together right before she died, it, it was it was pretty painful. Just the, you know, the experience of, you know, we all have our fantasized versions of what our parents were like. 
when we were too young to remember, and, and certainly before we were born. And then we, we hear about the reality of things as we grow older, uh, whether it comes up in conversation or through other family members, but to sort of have that evidence right there on the page and, and very inescapable, as you say, would have been a very painful experience and something to really, you must have had to sort out for quite some time. Well, it, what was most difficult in that was that the point in which I discovered those journals and really came to see the day-to-day experience of my parents' life, I had no one to talk with about it who could fill me in and say, you know, this is actually how she felt, or this wasn't so bad, or before this, they were getting along like the, you know, in, in a better way. I had to really sort a lot of that out on my own because, in fact, I'm an only child, and my grandparents weren't very involved with my parents' lives at this point. And so it, it did take a lot of sorting out and coming to terms with and sort of finding resolution over time to know that in some ways, like, I could love my father and be really attached to him and be really glad he raised me, but also in that be able to believe simultaneously that he wasn't good for my mother or that my, you know, my mother might have been happier if she had been with someone else. And I think that's a, a hard thing to come to terms with because you don't want to betray, a, you know, the love of someone and, and feel that they weren't right for someone else. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a process. And having said all that, we should point out that, and this is a key part of the story, after your mother's death, your father was committed to the idea of, well, I am going to raise this child. And although it was a very difficult process for him as well over the remainder of his life, and one that he grappled with constantly, and, and one that he wondered whether it was would the effect that it was having on him as well as on you. But he was committed to doing his best to, to do it. Yes, and I think that is really admirable. When shortly after my mother died, my aunt offered to adopt me, and um, would have given me a stable home with two brothers and a professional husband living in the suburbs. And my father was determined at that point that he wanted to raise me, even though if he didn't have that responsibility, he could have sort of enjoyed much more fully the experience of gay liberation that was taking place in San Francisco in the 1970s. I think in that period between my birth and when my mother died, he'd become very close with me, and he couldn't imagine not sharing his life with me. And so even though he didn't have a lot of natural supports, to raising me as a single father in San Francisco, he was determined to make that work to the best of his ability. Not only was it hard as a single father in San Francisco, but as a single gay father. You know, we're talking about a period when, and this is, of course, different in San Francisco, but, I mean, I remember growing up roughly analogous um, to you, you know, well into the 80s. Gay people were, you know, these semi-mythical creatures that you knew existed in big cities. And maybe somebody you knew had seen one. But there really wasn't a lot of frame of reference in terms of gay people being part of mainstream life. And that, at least, is something that, although certainly there was a great deal of prejudice going on even in San Francisco in the 70s, at least there was some gay culture there that your father could tap into. Yes, there is gay culture for my father to tap into, but there are very few gay men who were fathers openly at that point. So there wasn't a lot of models that he could follow. As well, there wasn't a lot of 
normalized um, representation of gay characters on TV and other media just for me to watch. So I, my earliest memories of my father, he was involved with men, but I didn't learn what gay was or that gay was different than what most fathers were until I was of school age. And then I started really looking around and noticing how other families were structured. And I didn't see any families like mine anywhere around me, nor did I even really see, like you were saying, a lot of healthy, sort of just openly gay people. I mean, that were with children. And so I think that I felt that there was something that I should be hiding in my own family, meaning like my father was publicly open and, and would read gay theme poems on stages and would go out to bars and, and cafes. But within the environment of my school, I was in the closet. There's this one scene in the memoir where you're at home and your father is dressed up. I think it was for a pride parade or such. And he's like, well, how do I look? And you're just like, oh, my God, you look so queer. And it was devastating to him. I mean, and this was still at a time where, I mean, as hurtful as that word is today, it has been reclaimed to a large extent. But in the early 80s, even on the page, the emotional devastation that he feels and, you know, and his reaction really comes through brutally. Yes, I, I think I have a memory of his reaction to that moment as being very painfully shameful for me, meaning I think I responded to him in a dismissive, disrespectful way that, that a lot of teenagers respond to their parents, just saying like, ugh, he looks so stupid. But I used this word that you know I heard my friends using, and to me it just meant embarrassing, but to him to say when he put on some lipstick and a, and a bandana around his head that he looked so queer, I was sort of positioning myself almost as the kind of bully he would have faced earlier in his life. And so to be able to have your own child do this is terrible. And his reaction showed me that what I had done was terrible. And I knew it was at the time. And I felt ashamed about that moment. But I also know that a lot of teenagers feel embarrassed by their parents. I think it was just underlined for me in the fact that I felt I had to be hiding some fundamental aspect of his life and that it would reflect badly on me. You also talk about the feelings of painfulness and, and shame very powerfully in the latter half of the memoir when you've gone off to college and particularly when you've gone off to study abroad. By this time, your father first knows that he's HIV positive and then eventually knows that he has AIDS-related illnesses. At a certain point, he wants you to come back to San Francisco. Your emotional reaction is complex because on the one hand, of course, you, you want to come home and you love him. But on the other hand, you know, you're 19, 20. This is the first chance that you've really had to get out from under his thumb, having been ra raised in a single family home in small apartments all your life. And you're just like, I'm living my life now. I want to live my life. Why do I have to go back and do this? And the way that you process those conflicting emotions, both then and in the writing of that 20 years later, is effective. Oh, thank you. I think it was hard for me because I, I do, I love my father so much in that era. He was, we were especially close through the letters that we wrote each other when I went to college. And I really felt he was my closest confidant. And I could share with him everything, and he shared with me everything, and he would sort of build me up when I suffered romantic disappointments or friends were mean to me. He was really there for me. And I knew at the point when he told me he was sick, it was devastating to me. And when he told me he wanted me to come home, I knew that I was the one to do that and that there was no one else who would do it, and there was no way I wasn't 
going to do it. But I think I was overwhelmed by the fact that my father could die within a year or two and I didn't feel ready for it. And, and it was also just at a point when I was finding myself personally and all and finding friends who were beginning their own adventures and everyone starting a new internship in their first apartments and we're going to do this together. And it was all about opportunity. And I had something that was going to bring me back home. And I didn't even know for how long or what that experience would be like, because when you're caring for someone with a terminal illness, you don't have a set, okay, I'm going to do this for six months and then I'm going to plan this other thing. Like you could be fast, it could be long time. And I was very resistant as much as I loved him. I was sad to let my new life go for an indefinite amount of time. You mentioned earlier that you found these journals soon after his death. I guess I'm curious in terms of the decision to tell the story the story now. I mean, obviously, at twenty twenty one, you're not ready, both emotionally or as a writer, necessarily, to tell that story. Why was now sort of the moment at which you felt okay, enough time has passed, or, or maybe even it wasn't even a question of enough time passing, but it was just realizing that okay, this is a moment at which I'm ready to tell this story. Well, I I had wanted and made stabs at telling the story at a few different points in the last 20 years. I knew, even before my father died, that I was going to write about it. And I knew that after I found his journals, and I knew that I had his letters and cartoons and his poetry, there was just so much material that was so rich that I knew I was going to have to do something. And I knew as well that this was a gift, in a way, that I received to get this material that no one else had access to. And if I wasn't going to make something out of it, it would not be kind of respecting that gift that I had of all these materials. But each time that I tried to write about my father, I did do a couple of essays, but when I tried to work on book proposals and think about something long form, I think I had a difficulty finding the distance from the experience to see myself as a character and not just as a, a narrator. And I think I was at that point still thinking, oh, this is an interesting story because there's I've, I've heard no other stories like this, and I've got all these materials, whereas now, with 20 years, I feel that this is one story in a larger history that hasn't really been told. And if my one story could help illuminate that larger history, then I am serving something larger than myself. And to, to be telling the story at the point that I have two children gives me a perspective on my father and what he was trying to do and what he managed to do that I couldn't have had 10 or 15 years ago. So I think I'm able to approach him with a lot more sympathy. And furthermore, it happens to be a moment in time, culturally, where the topic of, of gay marriage is mobilizing people in the United States and across the world. And I think there is more of a curiosity about what it means to have a gay parent and also maybe more curiosity to know about the history of gay rights. And so I think there's a combination of there being myself at a point where I'm ready to tell the story and a culture that's ready to hear it. Right. You mentioned towards the very end of the book that your story and your father's story is also a part of queer history, that even though there weren't necessarily other people like you other children like you or other families like you that you could identify with or 
or points to growing up that those families did exist. Since I've come out with the book, I've been getting a lot of personal emails from people who have said to me that they are feeling they're seeing themselves in print or they're experiencing print for the first time or that they're very moved because they're even remembering an uncle who died of AIDS in 1993 at a time when there was a lot of shame about that. And I think with regards to the AIDS crisis, there's a lot of unprocessed grief that hasn't been normalized into society because I think we've stopped thinking about or talking about AIDS and there was so much shame around at the time that that was never really lifted. And I think that the queer history has impacted all of us and where we are today at a precipice where we're talking about passage of gay marriage. I think it's important to understand the pioneers who put their lives and reputations on the line to live in a way that was against the norms of their societies. And so I wanted to be able to share the stories, hoping that people would, would take an interest in them and not just see this as stories belonging just to the queer community, but stories that belong to all of us, that they're part of our human history and our American history. Now, one of the things that seems like it makes this version of Fairyland, the one that has made it out into the world, different from your earlier attempts, is that in addition to working through your own memories and having your father's papers to, to go through, you also talked to as many of the people around you at that time that you could find. And again, underscoring everything that we've talked about in terms of the AIDS crisis, that that interview process is, of course, complicated by the fact that so many people in you and your father's lives from that period are also gone, but that the people that you were able to talk to really flesh out um, the situation and, and helped you see things I don't think the book would have been as good if I wasn't able to talk with contemporaries of my father's and look at outside resources to understand what was going on. As a teenager living through the AIDS crisis, I have memories, but I was too caught up in my own experience to fully absorb everything that was going on, what it meant. And so to be able to, to talk with people who could tell me the backstories of some of our friends or to tell me what was going on at the culture at large really helped bring that to life so that writing the book was a process of learning and discovery for me. And I generally feel that if you're writing a book and you think you have everything figured out, it's not going to be a very interesting book. I think that the writer should be learning things in real time, and that's what makes it interesting for the reader to some extent. Now, as a teenager growing up in a household with a father who is pretty much just scraping by as the editor of a literary magazine, but a literary magazine that had a pretty strong reputation. I mean, did you realize at the time, like, how significant it was to be able to, you know, the encounters, for example, in the memoir with people like Brodigan or Burroughs? Did, I mean, did you realize how, for lack of a better word, how cool that was when you were a teenager? No, I didn't realize how, that that was cool when I was a teenager because when I was a teenager, you know, I was still very concerned about fitting in, and I, and part of fitting in was not feeling broke in a private school, and my dad's chosen profession meant he was broke. I didn't know the backstories of people like Richard Brodigan and William Burroughs to know that that it was cool until many years later. I knew it was cool when I saw the performer Nina Hagen dancing and singing to a crowd of punk rockers, because that was very clearly energizing for me as a 12-year-old, but 
I don't think I appreciated my father's literary contributions or even the cachet of his of his circle until years later. In the writing of Fairyland, were there particular memoirs or memoirists that served as a as a powerful example to you in terms of how to, to frame your life story? I, I think I read a number of memoirs before writing it and then sometimes while writing it. Um, I admire Patti Smith's Just Kids because it's, instead of just being a memoir of herself, it's really a portrait of a relationship and how she and Robert Maplethorpe changed even from when they were children and then through the story sort of begins with their friendship and ends with his death. And that book also very successfully brought out a time and place New York in the 70s and a culture, a bohemian culture, which had similarities with my own. And so I wanted to see how she made that work. I'm also a great admirer of Michael Gilmore's Shot in the Heart, which came out in 1994, which was a um, memoir of his family and his brother Gary Gilmore, and he wanted to give um, a background on that story that wasn't in the Executioner's Song. And what I really liked about that book was that he seemed to move very effectively between history, history of Utah, or history of Mormonism, history of his parents' childhoods before he was born, and then into very personal accounts of his dealing with these memories and, and coming from a family with the, one of the most famous murderers in America, and so that he could move between these two voices, and I could end that book feeling like I, I learned a lot of history I wouldn't have learned, and also felt I was made privy to a very personal experience. And so it was very clear to me when I wrote my book that I, I, I wanted it to be more than just about my experience about of being raised by my father and, and that sort of private emotional world, but also that would encapsulate the history of our time that overlapped with our story that would give it context and have it make more sense. And that I don't feel is known as well outside the gay community, a lot of these stories. And so I, I thought, if people might take an interest in my story and might find me relatable, that they could then take an interest and learn about the stories of these men who died of AIDS or the stories of these uh, gay rights struggles. Now, with this book under your belt and out in the world, do you have any thoughts on what you might want to write about next? Is there a project of similar scope, either emotionally or culturally, you would like to tackle? I've had a few different ideas. All of my father's books are out of print, and I would love to put together a reader that would include his poetry and nonfiction that I might be able to have an introduction that would talk more about his childhood, which I don't get into in my book. In the process of writing this book, I've had a lot of interest in gay history. I feel like I, could, I would love to do sort of a shared biography between you know, three historical figures in San Francisco who helped make that city, because I really love doing that research. But I, I haven't settled exactly yet on what's next. It seems like however different your life today might be, and I think there might be a line somewhere in the book about how if your father were to see your life today, he might describe it as, as somewhat bourgeois. But it does seem that however you've ended up on life's path, that the experiences that you write about in Fairyland were really key in bringing you to the path that you, you're on now. Being raised how I was raised makes me a more aware person. I am a little circumspect about getting lots of stuff and kind of living in a hyper-consumerist way. Two years ago, moved into a house. It was the first house that I've ever owned that I've lived in my entire life because we've only rented and have now two cars, which also is unlike anything I grew up with. And 
there have been points where I've as I've moved forward in, in my middle class way to think, is this who I am? What does this mean? Does this change me? But I still feel that my father raised me to value ideas over things, and, and I still like to think critically in a way that he would appreciate to think about how mainstream culture works that he was more aware of in that he was always much more radical than, than me. But I'm very, in pro the process of writing this book was a, a process of learning to understand like the great integrity with which he approached his work. It wasn't for profit. It wasn't for fame. It was because he believed in these ideas and these writers that he wanted to elevate because he thought they were important, especially because society didn't think they were important. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of room for gay voices in mainstream culture, and so he felt that he needed to help inspire young gay voices to, to come out and produce work. I, I can see and appreciate now what that means. Being a writer should be community-oriented, not just about self-promotion. And so I, I try to absorb and live my life thinking of his example, but, you know, while still enjoying living in a house with two cars. Well, I think that... Fairyland is a really powerful tribute to your father's integrity as an artist and a really compelling portrait of the way that he raised you to hold the values that you continue to hold out. And I would encourage all of you folks to get a hold of Fairyland and to read it. I'm Ron Hogan. I've been talking with Alicia Abbott about her memoir, Fairyland. It's out from W.W. Norton. And you've been listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast. I hope you'll join us again soon for another episode. Thank you.